All right, so today we are continuing in our Life App series, and today we are going to be constructing the Sacrifice app. Now, that's, that's a, little, a little gloomy sounding, but as we look at Philippians 2, 12 through 18, we're going to see kind of Paul drawing the ultimate application out of this book of the Philippians. This is him basically calling us to think about everything that Jesus Christ has done, that he is, he is proclaimed in this book, and to put it together in real application. Therefore, this book is, this application is going to include all the different elements of the book of Philippians. It's going to talk about uniting together as a whole. It's going to talk about humbling ourselves before God, and it's going to talk about rejoicing in suffering. And all of those things are going to come together as we think about the pattern that Jesus Christ has set for us, for us, he has gone into humility. He has humbled himself in his death, and then he is raised to glory. And what Paul is asking the Philippian church to do is to follow that same pattern, to humble themselves in obedience, even to the point of death, so that they might become a sacrifice for those they minister to. So that is our goal this morning, to find out how we might sacrifice and really embody the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We're going to see that in Philippians 2, 12 through 18. We're going to see that, first we're going to see that pattern that Jesus lays out for us. We're going to see the call to imitate Christ in that pattern. And then we're going to see how we should actually imitate Christ. All right, we're going to learn how to, how to sacrifice as Christ did today. So let's, let's look at Philippians 2, 12 through 18. Uh, I'm going to start a little bit ahead of that. Um, I'm going to start in verse 4, just so we can get a full picture of the context. So Philippians 2, verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or protesting, that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should rejoice with me. All right, so if we look at our passage, which is verses 12 through 18, the first thing we're going to see is a therefore. Now, these are those connecting words that may seem kind of boring, logical, but this is actually a crucial part of reading your Bible. If you cut out those kind of words, you're going to have islands of passages. 
and each one is independent. And they're going to be about different things. Some are going to be really heavy commandments, like this one. These are heavy commandments, and we're just going to feel really oppressed by them. But other passages are going to be about Jesus, and we're going to like those. Those that therefore is actually bridging the gap. Bridging the gap between what Jesus has done and what we are called to do in, in return. So we don't want to miss those things. Our whole passage is actually built upon earlier stuff, what Jesus has done. So we're applying verse 12 because of what Jesus has done in 4 through 11. So let's look at verse 8 through 11 again. What did work of Jesus. Being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right, so Jesus humbled himself, which is what we all we focused on last week. We focused on the humility of Christ, but we tended to focus it on like a relational dynamic that we tend to devalue other people to build ourselves up. But here actually, the passage is drawing this connection between humility and obedience. And that is what Jesus is characterized by. Humility that is characterized by obedience towards God's will. So Jesus said he had to humble himself. That is what humility actually looks like, obedience. We have to accept that someone else has greater authority than we do. That someone knows better than we do. And then we obey. And this obedience was, was hard fought for. We think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. This was not an easy thing for Jesus. As he was sweating drops of blood, as he was crying to his father to let his path, this, uh, this cup of wrath go by him. But even though he saw the cross before him and the suffering and the shame and the guilt and the agony of that act, he still was obedient to his father out of humility, deferring not to his own will but to his father's. And he did all of that. He was obedient to the very point of death on the cross for us. His obedience becomes our obedience. His humility becomes our humility. His death becomes our death. He did what we were ultimately called to do. To humble ourselves, to be obedient. And he did what we should have had to do. Die for our sins. Jesus did that for us. And as a result, he was brought the lowest of the low. But then God exalted him to the highest of heights. Humility leading to glory. That is the pattern that Jesus has set for us. To humble himself in obedience. To be risen up into the heights of glory and exaltation. That is the pattern of Jesus. And that is the pattern that Jesus actually has set for us. But it's more than that. It's not just a, a pattern that we do that because, oh, we need to earn our salvation and we have to do that by groveling and humbling ourselves. No, his death was our death and his resurrection was, his, was our resurrection. We have found life in him. His salvation was our salvation. And the question is, how are we going to respond to that? To the fact that Jesus humbled himself, dying on the cross, and then he rose to new life and to glory. How do we respond? That is what this passage is about. 
And oddly enough, what Paul is calling the Philippians to do is to imitate that same pattern in the life of other people. To go through radical, humble obedience, even to the point of suffering and the point of dying for the sake of other people. Look at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So he's focusing in on this obedience, the same obedience that Jesus showed on the cross. But what does he mean here? To work out your salvation. Now this is troubling for a lot of people. Because all of a sudden we start questioning, well, I thought, I thought we didn't have to work for our salvation. Isn't salvation by grace? Why would I need to work this out? And therefore, a lot of Christians, they, they look at verse 11, and they like verse 11. And they look at verse 13, and they like verse 13. And so they just skip over verse 12. And you ask them, oh, what, what does verse 12 say? And they say, oh, well, God, God did it. Like, no, it doesn't say that. It says, work out your own salvation. That is what it says. And we have to be kind of genuine and honest enough Christians to see that it, it does say that. We don't have to be fearful or, or deny what it says. But we need to seek to understand what the Bible is actually saying. We know that we are not saved by works. We are saved by the grace of God by faith. But we still need to understand what this passage is talking about. And what it means is, what it means is that we have to live in light of this salvation that we've received. That what Jesus has done for us changes everything. It changes how we live our lives. And we are to work out this salvation, apply this salvation, embody this salvation that we have found in Christ in all of our circumstances, in all of life. And Paul has a very uh, specific idea of what that is going to look like, especially for the church in Philippi. He knows that they are going to endure persecution. And he is calling them to have radical obedience in the midst of persecution. To take on that suffering. To, not to deny, not to, uh, to wimp out, to stop obeying, but to recognize, no, I'm going to suffer by being obedient, but I jump into that full force just as Jesus Christ did on the cross. Now, that is, that is a big calling. I understand that. But Paul knows that, that that is the reality of the Christian faith. He knows that that is what he is probably going to be called to do. To, in his obedience, die for the sake of the cross. And he does. He martyrs himself. And he is martyred as a result of his, his radical obedience. His obedience that looks like Christ. And Paul is telling the Philippian church that they are called to that as well. They are called to radical obedience that could entail real suffering and even death. Alright, so the church is to work that out. To work out their salvation even in the midst of this suffering. Now what does that mean for you guys? Now you guys probably are not going to be martyred by your obedience. I understand that. Uh, most likely that's not going to happen to any of us. But we are still called to a radical obedience that could result in our suffering. To 
to suffer for the sake of, of Christ. And actually do that as a sacrifice for other people. All right, so what might that look like? Uh, let's take work. What might that look like at work? Maybe it looks like not doing the things that your business partners do. That the competition does. The underhanded things, the kind of sketchy things. Not telling the full truth to your boss. Not telling the full truth to your customers. It might just look like not being all about your work. Kind of giving yourself to your family. Recognizing that you might lose out on the promotion. You might lose out on other things. On the money that is entailed in, in that promotion. But that you're putting your family first. It might look like witnessing to other people at church even though you are not allowed to. Risking your job for the sake of the gospel. Now, I recognize that that, that will entail suffering. And you're saying, well, no, I, then I'd lose my job. Yep. That, that, is, that is true. And it's that kind of obedience that, that Paul is calling the Philippian church to and he's calling us to. An obedience that would actually cause us to suffer. All right. What might that look like in a marriage? That might look like being willing to be the, the wrong one. To kind of take everything and be like, okay, uh, maybe you're not seeing everything that you did wrong. But I'm going to see the things that I did wrong. And I'm going to ask for forgiveness. I'm going to move towards and end this fight. Even though I have to lose it. Being willing to lose the fight for the sake of the marriage. Putting the marriage before our pride or before uh, the sense that we won. Right? It might look like uh, putting the desires of our spouse first. That we give in to what they want. We let them choose the movie. We let them choose what we're having for dinner. We, we decide to pick up the kids first. Or to change the baby's diaper first. <laughs> that would look like the sacrifice of Christ. Yes, that would be the death of your desires. And what you want in this marriage. But that would look like living out the gospel in your marriage. Giving grace giving someone a free gift that they do not deserve just because you have been loved in return. All right, so we, we have a natural place where we kind of see this happen a lot with kids. We tend to recognize that kids kind of throw at us a lot of sin and frustration and anger. And then parents tend to give back abundant grace and rich kindness, not because they deserve it, but because that is what the gospel entails. <laughs> <laughs> that, is a, that is a difficult work but that is the gospel that is giving your kids the grace of God alright that, that's a, maybe an area where people do that well because we kind of have a natural inclination to do that we don't do this well with enemies so if someone slanders you you, you don't just tend to brush it off you, you turn around and start slandering them if someone cuts you off on route 40 Right? You're not just waving them through. Oh, oh they, they just really need to get to work. No, you're honking your horn and tailgating and you're going to punish them for the next mile or so for cutting you off. So these can be really big things like marriage, like your job. These can be small things, just how you interact with the world. 
And the thing is, are you going to make it all about yourself? Making sure that you get everything that you deserve, everything that, uh, and kind of giving them everything they deserve? Or are you willing to give people grace? To kind of put your pride in the back seat and, and give people free gifts, gifts that they do not deserve. That is, that is the gospel. To let the sin end with you, to absorb it, to die for it, and to suffer the consequences of it. Now, too often, of course, we repay sin for sin. When someone sins against us, we sin back. Or we are the initiators in our sin. If someone accidentally slights us or we're mildly inconvenienced, we sin. For really, really silly reasons, we resort to this sin. And that's where uh, we talk about this fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. That's how we are to work out our salvation. With fear and trembling. Now what that means is, in Jesus Christ, we are united to the true and living God. And we need to remember who that God really is. That is the perfectly righteous and holy God. That the like one way of trying to express his holiness and his righteousness is that he has a horde of angels surrounding him in heaven who every second of every day is proclaiming holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That that helps us get a small picture of his holiness and his righteousness. We're dealing with that God. A God that is called a consuming fire. And so when we think like that, and we think kind of the petty reasons that we resort to sin, it humbles us. It's kind of insane that we do that, but, but we who are connected to this God, we, we oftentimes just are kind of apathetic about our sin before him when we are called not to be giving sin, but to actually be absorbing it and receiving it, letting it die with us, bearing the weight of it as Christ did. All right, now you may think that that sounds really, really hard. And that is really, really hard. But verse 13, we have, we have some small consolation here. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, if I were to tell you all that stuff without verse 13, it'd be utterly hopeless. You cannot do this on your own. But thankfully, God in his power, in the spirit, in Christ, promises to work in us. And he works behind our efforts and in our efforts and through our efforts. Now, what we tend to do with that is we say, okay, if God is working in me, if God alone is able to make me do anything good, then shouldn't I just not do anything? Shouldn't I just kind of sit here and wait for God to work? That, I think, is the natural response. And we even say that, like, kind of thinking we're, we're saying something good and holy. Like, oh, no, I can't do any good on my, my own. I'm just totally sinful, so I just have to wait for God to work in me. We tend to think that that sounds like really pious, righteous language, and that we're just putting God first. The thing is that that is not at all biblical. It just isn't. It may sound good, but it's just not true. We're supposed to act because God is working in us. It doesn't kill our efforts. It actually gives us boldness 
to seek obedience. Because we know that God is behind us and God is working. We should boldly move towards greater obedience and greater humility and greater joy in the Lord, knowing that those labors will not be in vain. Because God is actually behind them, empowering them. He is working in spite of our sin and in our very hearts. So it isn't presumptuous to say that you, you want to be more holy or you want to be more obedient. We tend to think that that's just an unholy thing to think or to try to do. But when we actually do that by looking at the power of God, by looking at the power of the gospel, we're actually being faithful towards who Jesus says he wants us to be. He says that we are new creations. We are new creations. We are new beings. We are not the people we were before. And by the power of God, we can believe that and actually live in the midst of it. And it isn't just that we are trying to reform our, our outward ways. If we look at our passage, it says that he works both to will and to work. He's going to change your very heart. He's going to change what you worship, what you desire. We're not just kind of slapping on a veneer. He longs to actually work in the midst of our hearts. To change what we long for. To desire to sacrifice in a wholly different way. So that the cross and embodying the cross is actually a joy. Now, some of you probably don't like this. It just sounds really hard. I don't Most of you don't like this because it doesn't jive with your experience. If you look at your life, you say, well... I've struggled with the same sins for 20 years, 30 years. And here you are saying, oh yeah, no, God is just going to give you power and change your life. And you're actually looking at your obedience, not through the lens of God's power and, and faith, but through your experience and through hopelessness. And the thing is that... When we teach these kind of things, usually it's like, oh, well, Peter, you're just kind of young and naive. You believe these things. This is just not how it really works. And I probably am young and naive in a lot of ways, but these are not my words. I'm not convinced that God is going to carry you to completion. He says he will do that. And he says that he will give you the power to change. We either believe him in that or we don't. And just like all things, we believe it by faith. That he really can change us. That what he says is true, not by experience. <clears throat> Alright, so. Next time someone like <laughs> pushes you and it's like, well, like, what, what are you going to do about that? How are you going to change? What might, what might it look like to worship God differently? You're not going to say, well, I just need to wait for God. You're going to say, you're going to trust that God really will work in you. Because he is always working he is faithful to do that. All right, so how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? This is a big charge. Well, verse 14 through 18, Paul, Paul answers just that question. He answers how we are going to live as sacrifices, joyfully and humbly, being radically obedient. So let's start with verse 14. 
He calls us to do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now that's, that's kind of a weird one. If you're looking at, okay, God, I, I want to start being radically obedient. And the first thing he points out is just stop grumbling and complaining. We may seem like that, that's kind of a small thing. Why do you pick something so small, something so trivial? But it makes more sense when we remember that God has sovereignly ordained everything that happens. So, you may be frustrated and you may be sorrowful or even angry at some of the things that God has ordained to happen. That's legitimate. That is, this is a tough thing to realize that God has ordained everything that has happened. We oftentimes don't like what he has called us to do, the sacrifice he has called us to make. And you may think that, well, I should be allowed to grumble because grumbling is just honest. It is honestly realizing that I'm unhappy with some of the things God does. I'm allowed to do that, right? And the question is, is the answer is sort of. We are sort of allowed to do that. We are allowed to be angry and frustrated and sorrowful over the things that God has, has ordained to happen. But we have to do that in a certain way. We do that with God face to face. We do that through prayer. We do that by actually engaging with God directly. That is called crying out to God and that is righteous and holy. You are allowed to do that. What you aren't allowed to do is, is to grumble about God behind his back. To act like he isn't there, that he doesn't hear, and just rag on him as if he isn't able to, to do anything about it. That's the difference between grumbling and crying out. Because God, God can hear you. He wants to hear from you. He loves you as children. So if you're dissatisfied with him, tell him about it. He can take it. He really does want to hear from you. And he might actually help you. Or change things. Or, or teach you about what he is doing. But grumbling doesn't give him the chance to get to do that. It's complaining about him and saying that he doesn't care. And he doesn't, he's not going to listen. So yeah, go and share with him your frustrations. Share with him all the things you're angry about. That's legitimate. There are some intense psalms about that kind of thing. Go read those. But do not grumble. Grumbling is a whole different thing. All right, look at verse 15. This is the result of not grumbling. Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, that is a big return for a small investment. That if we stop grumbling and complaining, we're actually going to make it clear to the world that we are a pure and holy people. That we are the children of God. And by not complaining and grumbling, we're going to shine out into the world that we are real Christians. Now, that's, that's kind of ironic because I think oftentimes when we face the world... We like to complain about the world to the world. When oftentimes we're kind of just grumbling. Grumbling about what we wish the world looked like. 
what we wished it would be, and it isn't. But the thing is that if we really do believe that God is sovereignly in control, then God has a plan. And he has made the world as it is. And he is not hopeless in it. He's actually working in the midst of our world, in our generation, in this time that we kind of really do complain about as a time of faithlessness. Do we trust God that he's actually doing something good with it? So that, what if we like, just had an unwavering hope that even in the worst of circumstances, God is going to be working? That would be a light to a really dark world. And to, to bring joy into the most hopeless of situations. That is, that is a good thing. Because after all, like, all the things that we grumble and complain about, like, God is using those things. He is using them to grow us and to shape us into the Christians we are called to be. We may not understand that, but he really is. He's actually seeking to love us and to grow us. He has a plan. We can ask him about it, but we, there's more going on there. Alright, the second way we do this is we hold fast to the word of life. Look at verse 16. This is carrying down the same verb. Do all things holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. To put it simply, we, we obey because we know where we are going. We know that we are destined towards this day of Christ, this day of the Lord. And in that day, Jesus Christ will not reject us. He will give us everything that we desired. He'll give us himself. He will exalt us to the greatest of glories. This sacrifice and this humiliation, it's, it's not the end of the story. The end of the story is exaltation and salvation with Jesus Christ. We tend to lose the forest for the trees here and just focus in on our suffering when there is a story going on, an overarcher story of, of humility leading to glory. That is what we're going to receive in the day of the Lord. So how do we hold fast to that word of life? The word that Jesus has guaranteed that we are going to find salvation and, and glory in him. That he has taken our humiliation and that we are exalted with him. How do we hold fast to that? Well, the first thing is, kind of the, the obvious one, is to look at Scripture. That is what Scripture is about. It's the word of life. It's the fact that Jesus actually died and rose again. That is what the whole Bible is about. We tend to sometimes go to Scripture looking for just moral lessons or you know, simple commandments, wisdom maybe. But when we read the Bible, we are to see the gospel of Jesus Christ. And be reminded that we are going to make it to that day of salvation. That our suffering is not going to be forever. That our sacrifice is actually going to result in glory. That's what we're talking about in Sunday school. Trying to find Jesus in all the scripture. See how the gospel is really contained in all of these stories. Today we looked at Ruth and how, how the gospel is explained there. Alright, hold fast to the word of life. Now, for those of you who... The Bible, is, reading the Bible is hard. It's hard to do. 
It's not that fun. So I feel like I kind of have harped a little bit. I'm like, read your Bible, but the Bible's hard. So you can do this other ways, right? You can listen to worship music. You can listen to a podcast, a, a preacher who is doing this for you. We can just get encouragement from one another. But whatever you do, you need to hold fast to the word of life. You don't need to do it from the Bible, but you need to be reminded of what Jesus has done for you. The gospel of Jesus, what he has done for you. Because to the extent that we believe that God has graciously loved us in Jesus Christ, has given us all of himself, to the extent that we really believe that, we will be obedient. It just makes sense. Because we will understand God not as just this tyrant who is oppressing us, but as one who actually does love us, who loves us deeply. And so we might not understand the commandments. We might not want to do them, but we understand what God's intention is. It is to love us as his children. He commands us things for our, our own good. We see that tangibly in the gospel. And that's going to help us be obedient. Radically obedient even to the point of suffering. Alright, so we are to cling to this word of life. Not clinging to our pride or to our equality with God. We're to cling to the word of life. Alright, and finally, last one, we are called to rejoice in the work that God has called us to. Verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, when Paul makes this sacrifice, it's not in vain. It's actually, it's with a purpose. And he finds joy in that purpose. It isn't all about the suffering. It's not all about the sacrifice. It's about the result of the sacrifice and the suffering. He's actually attaining the, the joy of salvation. The joy of salvation for himself and the joy of salvation for the Philippians as well. Now, when he says he's a drink offering, all right, that's, that's Old Testament's drink offering. What a drink offering is, it's, a, it's an offering of wine that accompanies other sacrifices. So you never just do a drink offering. It always comes with someone else. Some other sacrifice. A lamb or a sheep or something else. And what the drink offering is, a drink offering is wine, which gladdens the heart. And the drink offering is actually supposed to be a mark of joy. That you make this sacrifice out of joy to please God and out of your own pleasure. So when Paul says that he's a drink offering for the Philippians' own sacrifice, he is the reminder that this is a joyful sacrifice. That we don't make this uh, simply out of duty, but because we long to please God. And we rejoice in him. And to be like Jesus is a joy. And that's where we kind of see this chain reaction, if the Christian life is lurking as it should, where we had one sacrifice of Jesus that resulted in all of our joy. The joy of finding salvation in Christ. And then we, in turn, out of that joy, are to sacrifice for other people. We are to be their drink offering, so that they then, in turn, offer their own sacrifices. So then there is this perpetual movement of sacrificing for one another. 
not using one another or controlling one another, but sacrificing for each other's joy. And that, that is a beautiful thing. That is what Paul has done for the Philippian church. That he rejoices that he suffers for them. And he calls them to suffer and return and rejoice. And that, that is ultimately what is behind obedience. It is for our own joy. The joy of standing before our God and him looking at us and saying, well done, good and faithful servant. That is our heart. To rejoice that we have pleased our Father who has loved us and who we love. All right. So, we are called to be radically obedient people who actually embody the gospel, encapsulate it, and present it to people by giving people grace and sacrificing for other people. And in doing that, yes, we will die. We will suffer. But in that suffering, we'll be united to Christ, the joy of that sacrifice, knowing that, that we will be raised with him in glory, that all of this humility will be worth it. Let's pray. Father, this is a difficult passage. And this is a difficult calling. Father, we ask that you would just give us a small taste of what this should look like. Would you show us how we might embody the gospel? How we might not be all about ourselves, but be about the grace of God that we have received in Jesus and giving that grace to other people. Father, would you show us how to make that a joy? Not just a mark of death, but a connection to Christ that we may know him more in our sacrifice. We may know his sacrifice in our sacrifice. Father, work in us by the Spirit. Thank you that you are already working, that that is your promise. Pray this all in Jesus Christ's name to his glory.